The very first bookkeeper that I had who worked for me as a pastor was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, she did a great job. She was meticulous. She was careful. In the 15 years she worked before she worked for me, she had not made a single error. On the other hand, you knew there was another hand. On the other hand, she was a pessimist and she was a rule enforcer. So if you were a volunteer in this church and you went out and say you bought a bunch of stuff for vacation Bible school and you went and you turned in your receipt, she would reimburse you everything but the sales tax because the church is exempt from sales tax. Thank you very much. Right? So you turn in a receipt for $106 and you get $100 back, which, as you know, engenders goodwill for volunteers who took time out of their schedule. <laughs> right? And so... I would meet with her every Monday morning. Now, I did two services. Uh, I would run around in the afternoon, and then I did small group Sunday night. So Monday morning, I was tired, you know, because that was the one day a week I worked as a pastor. And Monday morning, I would come in, and we, we would meet at 10 a.m. And she would say this every Monday morning. Max, in 10 days, we're going to run out of money. My heart would start pumping. And I would be like, Cheryl, I mean, what, what's going no, no, in 10 days? And then it would, the light bulb would click. And I would go, but there's going to be a Sunday in six, and we're going to get an offering. And she would say, you don't know that. <laughs> right? So it took me a while to realize it. But after our Monday morning meetings, I was always a little discouraged and I was feeling a little down and I was dragging. I was like, I need, a, I need more coffee. I need, I need to laugh. Um, have you ever worked with a Debbie Downer? <laughs> Some of us have. Some of us have. Um, it's hard. Uh, they're the sports team parent who shoots down every idea about the team banquet. We can't do that. That won't work. We don't have enough money. Um, on the group project at school, if you have to work with other students, they're the kid who would be like, Mr. Bowman said we can't do that that way. Mr. Bowman said we can't do that. Mr. Bowman, and you're like, quick, we're going to do this. You know, and so it's, it's, it's hard. Um, now, be, because this is church and I'm required to be honest in my preaching, I must disclose to you that I have been a Debbie Downer in my life. Yes, my, my internal default setting is Debbie Downer. If you don't believe me, ask my family. They're like, oh, baby. Okay, so we're all going to die. This isn't going to end well. We missed the exit. You know, if, if it can be a negative thought, it's in my brain by, by nature, okay? So it's easy, though, to get discouraged when you are working with negative people. And even more so, when you're the leader, so for those of you in your 20s, you step out into that role, you're the assistant coach, or you've got your first classroom. You're now some kind of leader. And, and what happens? People are criticizing your decisions. People are questioning the calls that you make. And, and people are talking about you behind your back, and you hear things. Well, you know, we were talking the other day. Really? <laughs> and nothing good ever follows that statement, right? <laughs> we, we, we were talking, people were talking, and dot, dot, dot. So even if, even if every single uh, person in your life was Tony Robbins, 
you would face discouragement, right? Tony Robbins is the guy who's like, you can do this, you've got this, I believe in you. Yes, I threw this in here for your husband, okay? So every, even if every single person in your life was Tony Robbins, you would face discouragement because things go wrong. Hello? <laughs> it just dawned on me. I broke my preaching glasses this morning. Things go wrong. People let you down. Things turn out harder than you expect them to be. You're in a medical treatment. You're in graduate school. There are twists and turns in life. Downsizing, divorce, there's all kinds of medical issues. Things come up. So I got to ask you, how do you handle discouragement? How do you handle discouragement? Probably a better question is, do you handle it? Or does it handle you, right? <laughs> Nehemiah was no stranger to discouragement. We've been following the story of Nehemiah, and today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. By way of quick review, Nehemiah was a man who lived at a time when there was no Israel. He was an Israelite. He was a Jew when the Jewish states had been defeated. Um, the Babylonians had come in and burned their cities taken out the city gates in many of the, the key cities of Judah and Israel, and they had a policy of deportation. So it would be like Canada invading us, coming in here to Nicholasville and saying to this section, y'all are now gonna live in uh, Monterey Bay. You guys, we're gonna deport you to France. <laughs> and you know, not that they all laugh that way, just on cartoons they do, okay? So, <laughs> and, and they would do this policy of deportation. Well, Nehemiah, was a high-ranking government official in the nation of Persia, which had kind of defeated Babylon. And so uh, Persia had a policy of, you guys are getting on our nerves. Go back home. As long as you pay your taxes and do what we tell you, just go back home, okay? Did we mention go back home? <laughs> okay, and so they had that policy. And Nehemiah was made aware of a problem in the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, like all of the Jewish cities, had been defeated, and, and so, this is sort of a, a representation of what it would look like when the walls were done. So this would have been Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, but the city actually extended way out here, and all of this was rubble. So it was a city that had been really, really large, and because of all these mass deportations, only had a fraction of the population it used to have. And Nehemiah was aware that the walls were just piles of rubble, the gates had all been burned and destroyed, and that was a problem for two reasons. It was a practical problem because if you were a city that had no walls, you were defenseless, which meant that anybody who had an army who had the military means could make you do whatever they wanted. The second thing that the walls uh, being in rubble meant is that it was a spiritual problem because God had made promises. And the walls being rubble kind of communicated to all the surrounding nations that yeah, we're God's people. Look at how awesome God is for us. You know, and, and they knew they had sinned. They knew they had violated things, which had kind of was part of their story and why they ended up getting defeated and deported. But there was a, an element of God's fame that was wrapped up in having the walls rebuilt. And so it had this practical dimension and the spiritual dimension to it. And Nehemiah couldn't shake that problem. And he wanted to get involved and he wanted to do something, and his heart was grabbed by it. And so he goes to Jerusalem. 
He gets everybody excited and they start rebuilding the walls. And that's where we pick things up in Nehemiah chapter four, verse six. It says this. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But it's at this point that discouragement sets in. Those of you who are older will go, preach! You want to remodel your kitchen. The kitchen cabinets are all ripped out. The floors are ripped out. It's at that point, right, that all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, this stinks. Why did we ever undergo a kitchen remodel? What were we thinking? We've been eating out for three weeks and now we're not gonna see the contractor for another two weeks. This was your idea. And then the blame starts to us, right, okay? <laughs> Halfway through graduate school is when all of a sudden you're like, why did I, why did I commit to every Monday night, four hours in class, stab my eyeballs out, I need a break, I can't do this anymore. So there's something about the halfway point of things. You're halfway done paying off your student loans. Well, this is gonna go on forever. Well, that's where we pick things up in chapter four, verse 10. It says this, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. First cause of discouragement is fatigue. When you are tired, when you are burnt out, uh, it's easy to get discouraged. I had no buffer on those Monday mornings with my financial secretary because I came into work tired. <laughs> and then when she was like, we're going to run out of money in 10 days, I was like, whoa, because <laughs> I was tired. That was part of the mix in that. When you're fatigued, that's when you're most tempted to quit things. Have you noticed? When you're just burnout, worn out, that's when you want to walk away. Um, new parents who haven't slept in six months. What were we thinking? We're not ready to be parents. Grad school. Uh, taking a second job. There's a point at which when you've been burning the candle at both ends, you just want to quit. So the first cause of discouragement typically is fatigue. Um, let's keep going. The second part of verse 10. There is so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. These are the same people who just the chapter before had been like, yeah, we're gonna do this. We're gonna rebuild the walls. God is awesome. It's this moment for such a time as this. Woo, big scripture banners, corporate sponsors, the whole nine yards, they were ready. And now it's like, we are never gonna finish. It's good to look in scripture and to go, man, these people are just so weak, <laughs> right? Okay, frustration and a sense of failure has set in. They're at the halfway point. They don't see what they've accomplished. They see what remains to be done and they're frustrated. Their gaze has shifted. Have you noticed that when you focus on the problem, sometimes the problem gets bigger? <gasps> It's kind of the way it works. How many of you have ever had a kind of job where the work is never finished? I did not know what this was like until I entered the ministry. I had always had manual labor jobs. When you're a janitor, at the end of the day, everything's clean. It's done. You can go, I did a great job today. 
And then there are jobs where no matter how hard you work, no matter what you put in, nursing, teaching, I mean, I could go down a list of jobs. It's like, I worked really hard today and I accomplished something. <laughs> it's just not as, it's, it's harder to get motivated sometimes. So uh, parenting is like this. Relationships in general is like, are, are like this because it's easy to become frustrated because it's not done. Um, we have a saying for this feeling that the Israelites are feeling in this, in this verse right here. There's rubble everywhere. We're never gonna be able to build the wall by ourselves. Uh, when you encounter someone and it's said of that person, you know, their heart's just not in it anymore. They've lost heart. Maybe they're a sports coach, Maybe it has to do with their marriage, but their heart's not just in it anymore. They're done. And, that, and that's where the people are in this verse. They're frustrated. They had gotten to a great start, but because they were focused on the rubble, they were focused on what remained, uh, they got tired and they became discouraged. And if that wasn't bad enough, they're threatened. Verses 11 and following. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. Good news, right? The Jews who lived near the enemy uh, came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Think of my financial secretary. We're going to run out of money in 10 days. You may have people in your life. You may have people in your family who are always the bearers of bad news, right? <laughs> you know, you're getting a raise from work and their thing is, yeah, but you're gonna have to work one Saturday every four months, you know, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> right? So that's part of it. Let's keep going. Oh, the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. These are people in the outlying areas. Now, Douglas Rumford did a study and this is interesting, okay? 60, is it 60%? I wanna make sure I get my ratios right, yeah. He, he took us, however many people, and he asked them to articulate their fears. What are you afraid of? And then he began tickling out how he could categorize those fears. And of this, in this particular study, of the people that he, that he, uh, that he studied, 60% of their fears were actually completely unfounded, had no, no merit. That's the blue right here. So 60% completely unfounded. 20% of what they were afraid of was actually in the past. I mean, it was done. 10% was stuff that would have a negligible effect on their life, but they were still afraid anyway. 5% was stuff that, yes, you should be afraid of this, but there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so you can't help. And then five, the, another 5% was, Yes, you should be afraid of this, and there is something you can do about it. <laughs> so all that to say, of this particular group of people, only 5% of what they were afraid of should they have been afraid of. 95% <laughs> of what they were afraid of probably wasn't worth being afraid of. What would, you, uh, what would you say, and how, how would you complete this phrase? You know, 
I'm afraid that if you find in conversations you're saying that, right? Maybe it's to your spouse, maybe it's to a good friend. Man, I'm just really afraid that what follows could be an indicator that you've got something going on in the pie here, <laughs> right? And you might want to you might want to step back, right, and ask yourself, is this unfounded? Is this something that's just in the past and, you know, it's done and gone? Is this really negligible? Okay, is this going to eat me for lunch? <laughs> and there's nothing I can do about it? Is this going to eat me for lunch, but I can do something about it? Like, that's some good evaluative things that you could do. Um, there's a good chance, though, that what you're afraid of is actually not something that's going to eat you for lunch if his study is to be believed. Well, let's keep going, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Nehemiah did in light of all this stuff. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. So one of the things he does is he reorganizes. He shifts people around. Some people are standing guard. If you're standing guard, are you working as hard as you were when you were building the wall? No. It's kind of a little easy breezy. <laughs> and so all of a sudden now there's built-in rest to the process. Some people are getting a chance to kind of rest a little bit. And other people are working. And, and he does it by groups. In other words, no one's out by themselves. And we saw this in, uh, what was it, chapter two, chapter three, it was the big chapter of there was this family and then next to them was this family and next to them was this family and next to them was the priests and next to them it was the next to them stuff. When you got people that you're standing shoulder to shoulder with, problems can get a little smaller you can feel like you can accomplish some things. So he does some reorganizing. He moves some people around. There's rest that's able to take place. And then if I keep going on in chapter 14, as I looked over the situation, Nehemiah is saying, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. He calls everybody together, and he, this is kind of a rah-rah moment, but he says, isn't, isn't this whole thing a God thing? And he revit, like, we can look back, and we can see he was, he was grabbed by this problem in Jerusalem. He prayed and fasted for four months, and then God made an opportunity with the king. And then it was clear that God was with him because look at all the things that God did through the governors and letters, and, and he came. And then they got half the wall built and seemed like a short amount of time. And for all of the people, there was this, yeah, God is part of this. And so he's reminding them, well, if God is part of this, like, isn't God bigger than anything, including this problem? And, you know, I'm sure he got what you and I get today, which is maybe a begrudging, well, okay, yes, God is bigger, I guess, I suppose. But no, God is bigger. You know, one of the things that comes up in the Old Testament time and time again is this that one word, remember. Remember the Lord. Remember the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember. Remember. There's this part because we go along 
and we get to this moment and we encounter this problem and we're like, wah, we're never gonna dot, dot, dot. You know what I found in my life when I go back and review and I remember the last clear thing God did for me, I'm like, oh yeah, God is with me. Oh yeah, God is for me. <sighs> Rebooting, <laughs> okay? Let me ask some questions in light of this, All right? Do you fight discouragement? If so, on a scale of tiredness, are you, <laughs> how tired are you? <laughs> Is fatigue part of the equation? Do you find yourself saying a lot, I can't, that'll never happen. Now you probably say it much better than I say, but everyone in my life says I have a whiny voice when I say that. <laughs> so I can't, that'll never happen. Do you find yourself saying those things? Lastly, are there some Debbie Downers in your life? Do you have these Monday morning meetings that literally suck the life out of you? <laughs> Okay, so some evaluative questions. So what, what can you and I do? What can we do in light of this, all right? Here's, here's the take it home. Rest your body, rest. And I'm preaching to the choir right now. Rest, rest your body. You know, we're commanded to work six days and we're commanded to stop working and doing on the seventh day. There's a reason for that. Your body is designed to need rest, which is why the CIA deploys sleep deprivation as a form of torture. <laughs> Your government does this to people to get them to disclose information and secrets. <laughs> Your spiritual enemy will do this to you to forget that God is with you and for you. Rest your body. Sometimes a 20-minute power nap, I, on my watch I wear during the week, I have a timer, and my timer is set to 22 minutes. And when I find, when I've gotten to points where it's like a case of the wah-wahs, if I've got the ability, I will take a 20-minute power nap. It's amazing. When I wake up, it's like the sky is not falling as quickly as I thought it was, okay? So, sometimes, so rest for your body. Secondly, you may need to reorganize or reprioritize. That's what Nehemiah did. They, the, the Jews, the Israelites were scared of people, armed people coming in and trying to stop them from rebuilding the wall. So he reorganized. Instead of everybody building the wall, there were the people building the wall and the people guarding. And it created a sense of, okay, we're, we're okay, we're safe. There's people watching, we can do this. Um, Jenny and I, when John Mark was a toddler, had an amazing marriage work relationship. It was awesome. Uh, Jenny worked during the day and I worked at night. So we didn't have to have John Mark in daycare. It was great, only we never saw each other. And in like most marriages, that was great for like a week. <laughs> and then after that week, it kind of really stunk. <laughs> and then she was barky barky, and I was barky barky, and we were like, and you know, and that kind of stuff. And your marriage may work better than mine. And so we got to this point where we were like, so this is not working. We we need to change something. And we did. We reorganized. I retired from my janitor job and got a different job. And we put John Mark 
in, uh, in a place, I think it was like at the time, two or th- just two or three uh, mornings a week. But, it, but it, all of us, within a week, we were all like, oh, we can do this again, okay? So maybe you need to pr- reprioritize or reorganize. Um, so again, Nehemiah did that. Last but not least, remember the Lord. When you have your eye on the problem, it's easy to have the sky is falling. When your eye is on God, it's a little bit easier to get through things. Um, God's goodness in the past. When I get to points in my life where I have the, that spirit, what I call a spirit of anxiousness, where I'm like, uh, and I'm tired, I will go back and, and ask myself, when, what's the last clear thing God did in my life? And I go back to that point, and I'm like, oh, God is here, God is active, boom, it's a linchpin. I may not feel it right now for the circumstances I'm in, but I can go back to this date in this year, and I've got that clarity. And it becomes an anchor point. God's presence with you now. Jesus himself said, lo, I am with you. What? What? No, that's not true. He's only with you on Sundays for like an hour. Lo, I am with you. Oh, always, always, even when there's problems, even when it th- things, things seem really, really dark and scary, even on Tuesdays, I am with you always. That's a promise. And then there are God's promises for the future. Um, Isaiah 40, 31, uh, I will strengthen you. I will be with you, Okay. In 2010, uh, my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and it was kind of a double whammy for me because, one, it was unexpected, and two, my parents had just made a series of decisions to position them to be uh, snowbirds. So they had just bought a home in Florida on the coast. They were going to transition to a new, hey, we're retired, we're going to enjoy each other's company, this is going to be great, and then boom, you've got pancreatic cancer, you have a few months. And six months after the funeral, uh, attendance at generations actually shrank 30% in that time. So it was kind of like a double whammy. And I remember being tired, frustrated, and discouraged. And I began to think, well, maybe I heard God wrong. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't be a pastor. Maybe, you know... And you get these thoughts in your head. Well, I had a good buddy, Martin, who said to me, Max, I am barring you from making any major decisions for the next six months to possibly two years. You cannot change anything significant in your life. You're a horrible friend. I hate you. Don't you understand? I'm going through, I, uh, Max. (laughs) And so he wouldn't let, you know what? It turned out he was a good friend. In the last year, I have felt like I have had a season of fruitfulness in ministry. I am more excited than I've ever been. I am more encouraged by the doors that are opening in the community, the things that are going on in people's lives. And if I had given in to what I was feeling in 2012, 2013, where would I be today? Again, discouragement can put you in a place where you want to make a decision that you might later regret. Rest for your body. You may need to reorganize, but most of all, 
remember the Lord, what he's done for you, that he's with you, and that he has something for you down the road.